0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. It's good to worship together. It's good to put God first. It's good to acknowledge reality. Sometimes we're so tempted to just think other things are so much more important, but moments have ways of coming back and bringing us back to the Lord. Sometimes those moments are difficult. Sometimes those moments are wonderful. Whatever that is for you today, welcome back to focusing on the real truth, Jesus. We're going to look at Mark chapter 15 today, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, and we're working on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So we're looking today at Jesus before Pilate. So listen closely. These are God's words for us today. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus said. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and Pilate asked to do, and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Friends, This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your precious word. It has a way of cutting through all our defenses, challenging us right at the core, convicting us, encouraging us, comforting us, strengthening us. We know it is your word, and it's designed to bring focus on you. We don't worship your word, we worship you, Lord. And we're thankful that your word directs us to you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of this sermon series, 24 Hours That Changed the World, and if you're here for the first time today, you may feel like you're stepping into a movie halfway through. You ever done that? Ever get late to a movie? And you're just kind of like, what happened? What's going on? So I'll give you a brief little recap here. We're focused on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. The four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote one-quarter of the Gospels to this last 24-hour period. I believe that they believed very strongly this was the most important 24 hours in human history because this was the time when Jesus revealed who he was and when he died for the world. In the previous weeks, we've looked at the Last Supper, this object lesson that God has given to us, which blesses us and reminds us that we as slaves are called to freedom, We've looked at the time Jesus spent in the Garden of Gethsemane and when he submitted himself fully to the will of God, saying, not my will, but your will be done. And also, last week, we've looked at the denial of Peter, Jesus' best friend, and the condemnation of the Sanhedrin upon Jesus. Jesus was condemned by those who were the righteous at the time. And in both of those cases, we saw that whether it was personal fear, fear for his own safety on the part of Peter, or corporate fear, fear for the country and what the Romans would do to it on the part of the Sanhedrin, either way, fear can drive us to do despicable things. And it's true in all our lives. But Jesus, when we trust in him, gives us the strength and the grace to take the high road, to take the road less traveled, And in those final moments before the Sanhedrin, Jesus, with his words, assured us of who exactly he is, Lord and Messiah. Well, this morning we picked the conversation back up, or the story back up, as Jesus is led out very early in the morning by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish leaders, and taken to the Romans. The Jewish leaders did not have permission to impose the death penalty on anyone. They could declare it, but it was meaningless unless the Romans gave them permission. The uh, territory of Judea at this this time was was deemed to be a subject territory. In other words, it was subject to the uh, to the Romans who were in control. Imagine if somebody was in control of our country, somebody like the North Koreans or the Russians or someone like that, where no matter what we did, they have a little bit of self governance that we could do, but. No matter what we did, we always know there are soldiers out there that are going to make us do it their way, and there are certain people that we're going to have to go to all the time to get permission to do bigger things. Well, that's exactly the way it was for the Jews. They were subject to the power of Rome, and Rome kept certain powers to themselves, and one of those was executing people. Imagine that hostile power in charge of our lives and hostile to our religion and hostile to our way of life, it would be a very natural thing to hate the power that's over you. And that's certainly where the Jews were. The governor of this Roman province was a man named Pontius Pilate. Let's look at him for a moment. He was an imperial administrator, a prefect. This is a a picture of Pilate from the latest uh, Son of God movie. Portrayed pretty well, I thought. He's one level lower than a Roman senator, which means he was pretty high up in the hierarchy of Rome. Pilate ruled from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, 10 years, and he would have seen Jesus and uh, condemned him to death right around A.D. 30, about halfway through his time. Now, you might be thinking in your mind, um, you know, uh, Jesus was 33 years old and A.D. 30 would only... That would make him only 30 years old, right? No, but that, that would be a logical choice, except that the monk who was trying to figure out when Jesus was born and working backwards in history wasn't that good at math in the Middle Ages. And the truth is, Jesus really was born about somewhere between 2 B.C. and 4 B.C. So to that I say, kids, stay in school, okay? Okay stay in school. It's important because our entire calendar is messed up because this guy couldn't do math very well, okay? So right around 30 AD, Jesus comes before Pilate, about halfway through Pilate's time. Commentator Edward Markart has summarized, and I'm going to use this uh, this morning, a lot of information uh, from Philo, who was a Jewish uh, theologian and historian, and Josephus, a Roman historian at that time. They they tell us a lot about who Pilate was and the kind of situation he was dealing with. The mood at the time that Pilate was in Judea was this completely polarized mood. Now, I know when you watch the news, you're like, is our country just totally shot? You know, total polarization, right? But no, we might be polarized, but these guys were polarized like hatred. Like riots all the time. In fact, Pilate had to put down 32 major riots in the 10 years that he was the prefect or the governor of Judea. That's three major riots per year. Good times. I mean, Pilate was not a happy guy. The Jews hated the Romans, and the Romans hated the Jews. The Jews hated Roman taxes, they hated Roman insensitivities to their religion. They hated the fact that they were constantly subject to them. And therefore, they were very, very tempted to riot. And it was very often, as I said, on a major scale. I mean, certainly there were minor things happening all the time. And especially, this is true of the Galileans, the folks from the outer edges, who were a little bit more empowered because it was like, you know, hey, they're far away. We could do something big up here and maybe they won't notice. And um, so therefore, Jesus was all the more suspect because he was from Galilee. Let me tell you about three of these riots that Pilate had to deal with. The first one went like this. The Jews were absolutely committed to the second commandment of the Old Testament, the the Ten Commandments. And that is you shall have no graven images of God. And if somebody did have a graven image of God, some kind of idol, then the Jews were very much against that. Well, Pilate married A relative of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, and therefore he was given the governorship of Judea and Jerusalem as a wedding present. Now, did you ever get a wedding present you really didn't like very much? I think Pilate probably thought it was a great deal until he got there and found out how cantankerous everybody was. He becomes governor, and against the recommendation of others who knew a lot better than him, Pilate rides into town into Jerusalem with his troops, with all their standards, or their flagpoles, bearing not just the average uh, eagle, and I think we've got a picture of it. Yeah, this would be like a Roman standard here, and it would typically have an eagle on top. But Pilate, because he was a relative now of Caesar through marriage, he had the bust of Caesar, or it was a figurine of Caesar, on the top of one of these standards. Now, no Roman governor had done this before because they'd all been smart enough to realize that if we do that, The Jews are going to immediately translate that into idol. Well, Pilate was like, oh, yeah, I don't care. Well, he started to care really fast because hundreds and hundreds of Jews showed up at his house in Jerusalem. They staged this major sit in, kind of like college students, you know, doing a sit in at an administration building somewhere or something. They're all sitting there, they sit there for six days. They're chanting, they're, you know, doing all this stuff. And finally, Pilate sends his troops out. And the troops surround these hundreds and hundreds, couple thousand people. And they say, look, you all leave right now, or we're going to kill you. And the Jews did this amazing thing. They all lay down on the ground and held their necks up. And Pilate, realizing, I cannot kill, like, Two, 3,000 people right here. He relented. He told the soldiers to step aside. He took the busts or the, uh, the uh, figurines of Caesar off of his standards, and everybody went home. Round one to the Jews. 31 more rounds to go. Pilate, uh, he was astonished by that act. I think that was the moment when he realized, these people are really serious about their religion. The second riot happened when Jerusalem, which was uh, like like today's desert southwest in America, struggling for water all the time, uh, they were in that situation, and Pilate needed to build an aqueduct, and uh, that was going to bring water into the city, and he didn't have the money. Uh, He didn't have some federal system that he could go to to get funds, and so he basically walked into the temple treasury and took the money. It's kind of like whether he stole it or borrowed it, it didn't really matter because it completely incensed the people at that time. This was their sacred money. This is the money that they had specifically given to God. And Pilate walks in, takes that money to build an aqueduct. The uh, crowd, huge, huge riot. This time, Pilate's sick of all the folks who are riding. And so he sends his soldiers out dressed as civilians with um, their weapons underneath their cloaks. And at a given signal, the soldiers pulled out their weapons and slaughtered hundreds and hundreds of Jews right there in front of the temple. Pilate was hated, of course, for this type of thing. And the neighboring governors started to send letters to Emperor Tiberius in Rome complaining that Pilate's brutality was too much for the situation and that his handling of riots was bad. The last riot, Pilate's final riot that he dealt with, the 32nd one, was in the year 36 AD. It was in Samaria. And a Samaritan had told several pious Jews that he knew where Moses had hidden some sacred uh, relics on on a special mountain. And so these folks got a whole group of folk, uh, Jews together, and they were traveling out to the mountain, and uh, they all had small arms with them, which would be translated, they sort of had their their knife or their dagger, you know, not something big, and they're all just armed that way. Well, Pilate gets the information that there's hundreds of Jews with small arms heading for this mountain. He sends out the cavalry. He sends out guys on horses with big long swords and everything else, and they attacked the column of pilgrims headed on this wild goose chase for the relics of Moses. They attacked him and killed hundreds of them. And because of this, one of the neighboring Roman rulers, governors, was so upset that he sent another letter to Caesar Tiberius and said, Pilate's got to go. And Pilate was removed from office, and he was sent to Rome. And as he traveled to Rome, Emperor Tiberius His relative, through marriage, dies, and it's the last we hear of Pilate. He just disappears into the pages of history. So, Pilate was a person who was brutal. He was dealing constantly with insurrection and rioting, and he was frankly sick of it sick of the mobs, sick of this nation which is torn apart by strife, sick of this wedding gift that he really didn't like after a while. And it's with this awareness that Pilate and his troops come to Jerusalem once again at Passover. This is probably, he's up for about riot number 20 at this point. And he shows up with his wife Procula and 600 troops. And they're ready if something goes on. So that's a helpful bit of information for us as we look at this passage of Jesus standing before Pilate. That's a context that I think helps us see maybe what, what is happening here and why Pilate is doing this. Pilate typically lived in Caesarea, out on the coast, the Mediterranean, wouldn't you? I mean, come on. He lived on the seacoast. It was nice. There were nice breezes. He'd go swimming every day. And, uh, but when times got a little bit crazy, he'd head into Jerusalem with his troops. He has 600 troops, which was considered enough to control the 2 to 3 million pilgrims that were there for Passover. Thursday night, nothing happens. Everything seems good. Friday morning, it all hits the fan. First thing in the morning, the Jewish leaders show up at daybreak. Why? Because Roman officials started their work at daybreak. Court was held immediately at sunrise. If the Sanhedrin had met in the morning and brought Jesus later in the day before Pilate, then uh, he would have been Uh, off on his other activities, and court would have been over. They would have missed court. So that's why it says, very early in the morning, they bring Jesus. And the fact that Pilate's first question to him is, are you the king of the Jews? Means that the Sanhedrin has brought Jesus not as a blasphemer, which is exactly what they condemned him of in their secret court, being a person who inappropriately claimed to be Messiah. That's not why they bring him. They bring him and, and, and condemn him or, uh, and claim that he is a potential political threat. He's a person who would be king. He's a person who wants to be a messiah, a political messiah. That's why Pilate says, "Are you the king of the Jews?" See, they knew that Messiah, the anointed one, the king of the Jews, that that had sort of the spiritual meaning, but it also had this meaning that would be very threatening to the Roman government. Now the irony is this. One of the reasons they rejected Jesus as true Messiah is that he wasn't political enough. He was a person who was talking about a kingdom that wasn't rising up and kicking out the Romans. And so that would be one of the reasons why the Sanhedrin would say, well, this guy can't be the real thing. Because we can't have a king who would still allow Romans to be in charge, so he can't be real. But when they bring him to the Romans, because remember they have to get permission from Pilate, To execute this guy, the Romans have to do the executing. When they bring him there, what do they say? They say, this guy's a threat to your political stability here in Judea. He's a guy who wants to be king, king of the Jews. That's amazing to me. The irony is incredible. He's, He's not political enough, so they think he's not the real deal. But when they bring him to Pilate to get rid of him, they claim he's all about politics. Isn't that interesting? That works. Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers to him, You have said so. Wow, that's a really interesting answer, isn't it? If you were on trial for your life and somebody accused you of something, would you give a cryptic answer like that? If he says, Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. He knows Pilate will say, okay, well, kill him, because he's a potential threat. If he says, no, I'm not the king of the Jews, that wouldn't be true, would it? It would be a lie. And Jesus isn't going to lie about it. Instead, he turns the choice back on Pilate. He says, that's what you said. That's what you said. In other words, he's saying, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. Now, think about the bravery of that kind of a stand In a moment in which he is on trial for his life. I mean, Pilate asked Jesus, you know, are you going to stand up against all these accusations that have been made? Are you going to defend yourself in any way? And except for saying, you've said I'm king of the Jews. He says nothing else. They accuse him of tons of things. He says nothing else. And it says Pilate was utterly amazed if you have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Did you leave the car out to get covered by snow this morning? Did you eat the last Oreo? I mean, there's a lot of things we can be accused of, right? And if that's the truth, don't if it's if it's not true, aren't you quick to defend yourself? No, I didn't do that. Come on, that was somebody else. I mean, we want to be understood, right? Isn't it really important to a lot of us that we be understood and, and that we be. Respected, and that we not be accused of things that don't really matter? Well, if you feel that way about an Oreo, how powerful is it that Jesus doesn't defend himself right in the moment when his life is at stake? It reminds me of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent... So he did not open his mouth. Jesus' silence is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Right there. The fact that he allowed himself to remain silent and not defend himself in this crucial moment in his life. Mark really emphasizes this. In Mark, Jesus only speaks to the Sanhedrin and to Pilate one time each. Now, we have other gospel accounts, and Mark isn't uh, um, saying that those accounts aren't right, but he's giving us his account, and what he's emphasizing is Jesus did not defend himself. In a moment when he could have, he does not defend himself. The commentator J.C. Riley says The first Adam was rightly accused of sin, and he responded with numerous excuses, but the second Adam and Jesus is often called by theologians the second Adam. The second Adam was wrongly accused, and he responded with silent endurance. Pilate questions Jesus and finds no guilt in him. Jesus is innocent of the charges that have been brought against him, and Pilate can see through the sham. He sees, he gets it, He understands that this guy is basically a scapegoat, that for some reason that he probably doesn't understand, these chief priests and teachers of the law want to get rid of Jesus and they want Pilate to do it for him. Now remember, Pilate hated the Jews and the Jews hated Pilate. So it's not like Pilate wants to help them out. I mean, probably the moment he figured out that they wanted him to do this, he was inclined to say, oh yeah, you want me to do this? Well, let me just see. Maybe I won't, just to spite you. And so Pilate is questioning, and he's wondering. And he, of course, knows that they don't care about Rome. And so when they come forward and say, it's very, very important that you get rid of this traitor, this Messiah-type figure, because he might be somebody who's a threat to Rome, he knows that they don't care. He knows that they would love it if there was a Messiah figure who rose up and got rid of the Romans. So he doesn't want to please them. He's reluctant. He's reluctant to get rid of this innocent guy. And he's looking for a way out because he doesn't want to make a decision here. He doesn't want to be the the person on the hook. And he thinks, you know, how can I get out of this? And the crowd is gathering, meantime, for this moment that, that happened on a yearly basis at the time of Jesus. This was not something that was common across the Roman world, but in this particular time and place. This, was a, this had become a common little tradition in their era, and it was that there would be a prisoner released once a year by the Romans to sort of placate the crowds. And Pilate realizes, oh, the crowds are gathering for the prisoner release. Maybe I can get off with this. So he brings Jesus out to them, and he brings out Barabbas, the person that some people are shouting for. And he basically says, Why don't you guys make a decision? Who do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? Now, what's interesting about Jesus, or about Barabbas, is that his name, Bar Abbas, means son of the Father. Son of the Father. Isn't that interesting? He was another messianic figure. In fact, there were many people who took the name Barabbas because they wanted to be Messiah-type people. They would rise up and have an insurrection. It would get put down, and, uh, uh, and everybody would go, well, apparently that guy wasn't the Messiah. So it wasn't an unusual thing to have a guy who's claiming to be Messiah, but he also is claiming to be Son of the Father. So in this absolute amazing irony, here's Pilate saying, do you want this Son of the Father or this Son of the Father? Which king do you want? Which Messiah do you want? If you can pull up the uh, photo, Antonio Cesare's photo, uh, or uh, picture, famous painting, uh, painted in the 1890s, entitled "Hae Homo, meaning Behold the Man. And here we see it from the perspective back, looking from, from behind. Here's Pilate leaning over to the crowd, saying, Behold the man. Jesus, the king of the Jews, do you want me to let him go? And what's interesting about this is that the perspective we have is sort of of the guy who's on deck. It's almost like Barabbas is standing there. Jesus is the first offering. Do you want the king of the Jews? And they're all going to shout something. We know it's no. And then Barabbas is going to be brought forward. He's going to say, do you want Barabbas, son of the father? You're revolutionary, involved in insurrection and murder. And they're going to shout, yes, we want Barabbas. The choice of Jesus or Barabbas, that's a choice before us all, isn't it? Do we really want Jesus? Or do we want the person or the solution or the thing which seems like it might be the better choice at this point in my life? It's very tempting turns out to be a big tactical blunder on the part of Pilate. Now he has to do what they say. He sort of gives the choice over to them. And of course, they're stirred up by the chief priests to shout, Barabbas, yes, let Barabbas go and get rid of this other guy, crucify him. Now Pilate doesn't want to do that. He's got a known murderer, insurrectionist, traitor, he's going to let him go and he's got this guy that they've claimed all these things on, but there's nothing on him. He's totally innocent. He won't even defend himself, and he's going to keep him and murder him? How's that going to go down in Rome? But the crowd starts getting whipped up so much, he realizes, oh, my gosh, I gave these people this choice, and now I have to deal with it, because if I don't, it's going to be riot number 20. And Pilate doesn't want another riot. And so in this crazy moment... Of trying to appease the crowds and trying to make up for his own blunders, Pilate finally just says, Take that guy away and kill him. Let Barabbas go. Maybe he can hide it somehow. Maybe he can let that slip by somehow. At least there won't be another riot. J.C. Riley says again The release of Barabbas and the conviction of Jesus is the perfect metaphor for the gospel the great sinner is freed and the sinless one dies in his place. Isn't that amazing? Just like the gospel, Jesus going forth to die in the place of all of us, all of we who are sinners, who deserve, according to the Bible, deserve death and separation from God, but Jesus dies in our place that we might have life and life eternal and life abundant. Pilate Caught in the middle, lets Jesus go to his death. Friends, there is no neutrality before the cross. There's no middle ground. We want there to be. Our society begs for there to be. Can't we just say, if the cross is good for you, it's good for you, but it's not good for me? I don't have to believe that stuff. In fact, you know, I could believe that stuff. I could say, I believe in God. I might even believe in Jesus. He was a great guy. But I'm not necessarily going to have to do this follow Jesus all the way stuff. And Jesus says, look, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either following me or you're walking away. There's no neutrality before the cross. There's no middle ground before the cross. Edward Markart notes this. This is his quote. When I think of Pilate, he was not like Annas and Caiaphas who blatantly wanted to have Jesus killed. Pilate was not like Judas who betrayed Jesus for money or greed or material prosperity. Pilate was not like Peter who denied Jesus at the crucial hour pretending that he never knew Jesus. Pilate was like none of these. Rather, Pilate was one of those people who wanted to remain neutral, who didn't want to become involved. He wasn't for Jesus, nor was he against Jesus. Pilate was the man in the middle, and he wanted to remain in the middle where he thought he could save his skin. That's one of the greatest temptations of our time, is to think that we could not make a choice about Jesus, that we could just sort of fudge it Stay in the middle. It makes me think of two images. The first is uh, the Knife Edge on Mount Katahdin. There's a picture here. Here's our hikers. Uh, Kristen and I have hiked this. Uh, this, is a, this is a great hike. Uh, you may disagree. Um, it's, it's, and, and it's hard to get the feel here, but there are several places where it's really only about two or three feet wide, and it just really drops off on both sides. Now, here's the deal. You can hike the Knife Edge and live. You can make it along that path. It's it's exhilarating. It's fun. It's it's really cool. It's on Mount Katahdin in Maine at the end of the Appalachian Trail. Now, let me show you the next photo. This is Cutco knives. Anyone know what Cutco knives are? Out of Olean, New York. When they've done polishing a Cutco knife blade, the edge of the blade is ten times thinner than a human hair. And you may know that from direct experience. I know I do. Oh, man. It's not possible to sit on the edge of a cutco knife. It's, you're going to go through, okay? It's possible to make it on the edge of the knife edge on Mount Katahdin. And most people want that knife edge, that Jesus moment of am I for Jesus or against Jesus? Most, most people want it to be like the knife edge on Mount Katahdin. Yeah, if I'm careful, I could make it. I could walk that line. But friends, the reality is it's like a fence with the top of the fence 10 times thinner than a human hair. That's the reality of whether or not we'll be able to sit on the fence for following Jesus. See, many things in life are both ands. You can be a musician and an athlete. You can be a UK fan and a Syracuse fan. I just want you to know that. <clears throat> but there are some things that you can't be, and one of them is either for Jesus or against Jesus. You, you have to be either one or the other. You can't be both. You can't be fudging it in between. Pilate is not known for making a judicious choice to keep the peace. He's known for leading, letting a guilty man go and putting an innocent man, the innocent man, to death. That's what Pilate's known for. Look at these words from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Some churches say that every single week. Many, many churches say that every single week. You know, I I think about what my old pastor in Houghton used to say. Pilate's mother probably never dreamed that her son's name would be spoken again and again and again, down through the ages, probably more than any other ancient person except for Jesus. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. That is noted constantly as people recite the uh, Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. He's remembered for his attempt to be neutral, but finally the choice that he made. See, even Pilate, who wanted to be neutral, is forced into a choice in which push comes to shove. He says, let that guy go. Let him go to his death. He thought he was making the choice that was wiser. He thought, Rome, or this person, obviously Rome, and I want to point out to you that the importance of Rome versus the importance of Christianity is exemplified in the fact that we name our sons Paul, Paul. And our dogs, Nero. You like that? Pilate made the wrong choice. That great Canadian philosopher, Getty Lee. Anyone know who that is? He's the lead singer for Rush. You know that great Canadian philosopher? Getty Lee, he he's once said in the in, in this great song Free Will, here's the words: if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Friends, there's a lot of us out here who are saying, I, I don't want to necessarily be all in. Can I live my life with a little church and Jesus sort of sprinkled on top, but then I get to kind of make all the other choices? And Jesus says, are you with me or aren't you? It's like a cut knife. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. I don't get all my philosophy from Rush, but once in a while, they got some good stuff. (laughs) Jesus forces us into a choice. And I don't know where you are today. You might be somebody who is a Christian, you believe, but this all-in stuff is kind of much. I want you to know you're trying to balance on a cut knife right now it's going to cut you. Which side? Are you all in or not? You might be somebody who's not ever followed Jesus, and you're saying, really? It's this much? And the answer is, "Mm mm-hmm. But I just want to assure you, it's wonderful. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Following Jesus is the best choice It saves you from the knife edge. It also saves you from the nightmare of your life without Jesus. Your life where you get to make all the calls. We think, man, if I get to make the calls, it's going to be great. Now, if, if you've been doing it long enough, you know, if you get to make all the calls, it's going to be messed up. But if you turn it over to Jesus, it's worth it. Friends, today, if you choose not to decide... You still made a choice. Where are you? I'm going to ask the band to come forward. And um, it might just be Mike, but that's fine. Uh, and uh, I'm going to play a little. We're going to pray and um, just sing a little bit. I want you to know the altar is open. If you want to pray about a choice that you're making with Christ, whether you're all in, this is a great place to come and pray. Somebody can pray with you. You can pray by yourself. Whatever you'd like. But today, today is the day. Not to put it off. To make the decision. To do what Jesus calls you to do. Is he really the king of the Jews? He looks at us and says, that's what you said. Do you believe it? Let's pray together. God, we're thankful, we're grateful that you came and you sacrificed yourself for us. And we confess that we're tempted, we are so tempted to say, that's really nice, and I'd like that to be a part of my life, but not my whole life, because I'd like to have my foot on the other side somewhat too, where I can have control. And Lord, You don't want us to get cut. You want us to make that choice because you know that without making the choice, we're still chosen against you. God, I just pray that in our lives, right now, we will choose you 100%. We don't even know all the implications of it, but we know from testimony that it's worth it that anything less is not the life we want to live. Give us grace, God, we pray. As we sing, as we pray, as we go out today, encourage us, call us, help us to respond, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.